You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. This hour, we're opening a new series of conversations with women in faith. As women's voices in faith communities become more influential and, of course, more necessary, I'll be talking with women who are energized and activated by some of our most urgent policy, spiritual, philosophical questions. We begin today with Nadia Bowles-Weber. She founded and pastored a Lutheran church in Denver called the House for All Saints and Sinners. Sinners and Saints make that. She recently described a congregation as a hot mess. It's a bunch of people who really don't belong in a church. We'll come back to that. Bowles Weber is out with a new book that argues that churches could and should be a place that's committed to the sexual flourishing of its people. And while you're recovering from that double take you just did, listen to what Bowles Weber says about it. What I'm inviting us to do as we forge a new Christian sexual ethic one that's based not on a standardized list of thou shall nots, but on concern for each other's flourishing. So as Nadia Bowles-Weber joins us this morning, I'm interested in whether your church considers healthy sexuality to be an integral part of what it means to be human. Is your faith leader committed to that? Is there discussion about it within your congregation, within your faith community? I'd like to hear a little bit. I'm sure Nadia would, too. We'd like to hear a little bit about how that discussion takes place, what the leader of your faith community has to say about it, how you enter into that conversation. So as we talk this morning with Nadia Bowles-Weber, does your church consider healthy sexuality to be an integral part of what it means to be human? And how does that discussion take place? 651-227-6000. 800-242-2828. On Twitter, where I'm hearing from some of you, that's great, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Nadia Bowles-Weber's new book is titled Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, and she joins us today from Denver. And Nadia, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks. Good to be here. I think it's pretty interesting that you used the language of reformation and not revolution. I mean, you're saying... Oh. We've got a structure. We're going to reform within that structure. We're not going to tear it down. So that's deliberate, right? Yeah, I mean, it it really was deliberate because, you know, what Martin Luther did, you know, in the mid, in the 1517, was he he looked at what was— what was harming the people in his care? He realized that the teachings of the church— were causing harm in the lives of his parishioners. And he decided to be more loyal to the well-being of his parishioners than he was to the teachings of the church. And that's really what sparked the Protestant Reformation. And not to liken myself to him, but I just over 10 years saw how much the teachings of the church had caused harm in the lives and the spirits and the bodies of the people in my care. And so I'm just saying, hey, it's time to—if re- if the teachings of the church are harming 
people, we have to rethink those teachings. We should never be more loyal to a doctrine or an idea or an interpretation of a Bible verse than we are to people. You know, I had no idea how much St. Augustine has to answer for on this. <laughs> it was, I, I really learned um, that mm. some guy who was influential and born in 354 A.D., oh my gosh, still influences much of the way religious people think about sexuality. Put that yeah. together for me. Explain. Well, it's just that, um, you know, so much of these ideas sort of originate in the interpretation of the Garden of Eden text. You know, we go back to the in the beginning um, to say, you know, who are we as humans and and what are we comprised of? And so um, the case I'm trying to make is that we all get to go to these stories. We all get to go to scripture to try to help us uh, in a process of discernment and to try and make sense of our lives. Um, I, I just don't think that like because this one guy did it in the fourth century because he did it first. <laughs> then what he then what he has to say uh, stands for all time. Um, and so, for as an example, if if I polled people and said, "Hey, tell me the Garden of Eden story," um, nine times out of ten, people would probably use the word "the devil" and temptation <laughs> and original sin and a fall from grace, and literally none of that is in the text. All of that is in Augustine's writing about the text, where he had some personal issues, and he was trying to resolve them by looking at Scripture, and we all get to do that. Um, but we we don't have to sort of default to what one guy found, <laughs> given his issues, just because he did it first. In 354 AD. <laughs> yeah, it was a minute Jeez. ago, Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, the way the church sees history. Let me grab a call here to Patty in New Brighton. Hi, Patty. Hi, Thanks so much for calling. Hi. Hi. What do you want to say? Thank you. So I, I teach a comprehensive sexuality education program for eighth graders at my Unitarian Universalist Church well, in St. Paul. Our Unity whole Unitarian. lives. <laughs> you said it. And uh, yes. I'm a 45 year nurse. And have taught sexuality to teens and worked with kids my whole career. It is amazing, and it's it's morality based. We we emphasize uh, an abstinence that defines um, healthy sexuality as avoiding the intercourse behaviors that have risks of pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, and emotional impacts that that you don't expect. And so, basically, we're empowering kids to understand their bodies with the truth. It's a whole school year program, and we meet once a week for um, for about two hours. And um, I just want to uh, say, um, I, I grew up as a Catholic, and I was told it was a mortal sin to touch yourself. And so we mm -hmm. develop every little uh, dodge and euphemism in uh, in avoiding confessing that we masturbated. And <laughs> the bottom line was. Um, kids deserve the truth. They deserve uh, a, a philosophy of sexuality that it is an absolutely integral, healthy part of your life. And and the UU Church has been welcoming and affirming uh, forever. That's, that, I mean, that, that's, that's really the philosophy. I mean, in in some ways, not maybe not in the Unitarian Church, but 
there may be some kids who this is going to be the place where they get this kind of information and couched in the way that he's just described is hugely valuable, isn't it? Oh, I, Patty, I'm so grateful that you called because um, I think it's really important for faith communities to know that they don't have to reinvent the wheel, that there already exists a comprehensive birth to death sexual education curriculum that they can start using in their churches called Our Whole Lives. And it, it it's amazing, and it can be used in any congregation. Now, it was written by Unitarians and UCC, so for some of us, we have to kind of sprinkle some theology on top, which you can totally do. It's so much easier to sprinkle your theology on top than to try and extract theology you don't agree with. And so... Um, it's it's already available, and uh, everything I've heard about the people who have gone through this program is super positive, so I really commend it as a resource to your listeners. You know what I was wondering as I read the book was how many denominations and faith communities of all kinds are really interested in this, because many of which are led by men. Because, you know, I was looking back through the debates, the Methodists don't allow the ordination of LBGTQ pastors. Southern uh, Baptists still oppose same-sex marriage and allowing gay people to serve in the military. I think the Evangelical Lutheran Church couldn't come to a church assembly agreement, right, on, on ordaining gay pastors. Is that right? Oh, no, we did in 2009. There okay. was a change in policy in the ELCA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's it's interesting moment that we live in in terms – it's actually apocalyptic technically. I wrote an op-ed a year ago for the Washington Post about how the Me Too movement's apocalyptic just mm-hmm. because that word means – a revealing, an uncovering. And so we're in a moment that's apocalyptic because the truth about certain things is being revealed to us in terms of uh, sexual assault and sexual misconduct and sexual harassment and sexual predation within religious traditions. Um, you know, the the Houston Chronicle broke that story about the Southern Baptist Convention and right. just how many um, sexual abuse cases have been covered up. We know that, uh, you know, so much is unfolding in the Roman Catholic uh, Church as well. And so uh, I've just recently developed this curiosity, which is I am, I'm curious what the correlation is uh, in, in the prevalence of, of, of sexual assault and misconduct and predation. And now it, that happens anecdotally in every single tradition. We know this. But what's the preval- how does the prevalence of it correlate to sexually repressive teachings within that same tradition? How does the prevalence of it correlate to ha- what what level of access women have to power and leadership in those traditions. Wow. So, I mean, what I hear you, again, you're asking the question. You're not making conclusions. But I hear you coming right to the heart of what's going on in the Catholic Church. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a scientist. Someone should do the study, but I have a hunch. (laughs) You know, Which I mean, is? the thing is, is my hunch is that when you have really sexually repressive teachings, that does not create a sex that does not create a situation where everyone remains sexually pure in some delusional way. That creates a situation where the shadow side of people's sexuality is lifting weights. 
<laughs> in the background, <laughs> and it, it it will come out sideways. It will come out sideways in some way, shape, or form. Nadia Bowles-Weber is with us if you've just gotten in on the show. She's also our first guest in a spring and summer series that we're kind of simply calling Women in Faith. We're going to talk with women who are energized and they are activated through their faiths, a variety, many different denominations and faiths, but they are taking up some of our most urgent uh, questions about policy, spirituality, some philosophical questions. I am really excited about this series, and we have some great women coming, including Nadia, who starts us off. Her new book is called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. And I'm asking you this morning about whether your church and your faith community considers healthy sexuality to be that essential part of what it means to be human. Are there discussions about it? What does your faith leader say about that? Is it is it open? I mean, is this something that just never gets talked about and is pushed away? Or is this something that you feel open and the conversation is available within your your faith community. I'd like to hear about that. And if not, what would you like to have uh, within your church, synagogue, mosque, wherever you worship, whatever faith community you belong to? 651-227-6800-242-2828. On Twitter, at Carrie NPR, where a listener says, sex for procreation only has been the bread and butter of religions forever because it keeps them with perpetual followers. As a while, they are only interested in existing and growing. What, what Nadia, is, is, is there some truth to that in your view? Yeah, you know, so I, um, when I got divorced and I ended up uh, in, with the person I'm with now, eventually, uh, my boyfriend, Eric, we've been together two and a half years, and he's not Christian. And I, I asked him, why do you think the church for so long has tried to control sex? And without skipping a beat, he goes, well, I always assumed that the church kind of saw sex as its competition. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm writing a book. Like that, that, was, the that was the moment because I thought I can't even tell you exactly what that means, but I knew in that moment it was true that on some level – both with sex and religion, we use both of these things to alleviate, I think, existential aloneness. Mm -hmm. I think we seek union to alleviate that lacerating experience of being human that, that is just this sort of isolation. You know, we, we want union with something to alleviate that existential aloneness. And that happens both through sex and through religion. So I, um, part of the book was an exploration into, into that question. You know, it, it's really powerful for people to have a, a positive mess, to have positive messaging about their sexuality, not just their orientation, but just even their sensuality right. um, in a religious context. And I think theology uh, around that is really impactful because, um, you know, it, the church is not the only place where negative messages 
about sex come from? Of course, it also <laughs> comes from the sure. culture, right? Yeah. I mean, there's the commodification of sex within the culture, but there's also the sort of human worthiness competition extravaganza that we're constantly faced with in terms of being this barrage of images of the the type of body, the type of person that's worthy of desire. And then we have to judge ourselves according, all of that. So, of course, the culture gives us plenty of toxic messages about our bodies and sexuality. But I try to not indulge in the sin of false equivalency because to say that the culture gives negative messages and the church does as well is not to say that they're the same impact. And the reason they're not the same impact is the culture has never implied that the creator of the universe is disgusted by my 50-year-old body, right? Like, that's different when the church is saying God, the creator of the universe, is deeply disappointed with you if you touch yourself or if you are a sexual being and you're not married, right? Those messages go into our DNA almost. And so... Um, but to have positive messages theologically about these things can go that deep as well. You know, I, I've used this phrase that that I love that you've used a lot in the book. So it would be a good moment maybe to, to, to define it. Sexual flourishing. You, your principles uh, for that include gratitude and generosity, everyone without exception, shamelessness. You added poetry to that. I love that. How how did yeah. you come to your definition of what sexual flourishing embodies? I think I just did it in the context of the community I was serving. And I spent almost two years interviewing people at House for All Sinners and Saints and saying, what message did you receive about sex and the body from the church? And then how did that message affect you and your life? And how have you navigated your adult life since then? And just hearing people's stories and then sort of paying attention to where where do people have freedom from those and what does that look like and what does sexual health really actually look like? Because um, there's not a positive sort of message about that. Some people might want to undo the negative messages, but I'm like, where's a positive message? And like, for instance, pastors sometimes will want to know what the people in their church are giving, right? Who's tithing? How much money are they giving the church? And the pastor wants to know those details because uh, people say, well, it's a sign of their spiritual health. I never wanted to know because I'm not like mature enough for that to not matter. (laughs) So I was like, no way. It's really best for everyone. I don't know. But why isn't it a sign of spiritual health as well that if the people in our care have healthy sex lives, right? Like that could be an aspect of, that is an aspect of your spiritual life. Not not according to anyone's measure, but yours. Like, are you having the sex you want to have? So are you experiencing pleasure in your body? Are you able to get out of your head enough to be fully present in this part of your life? Is it life-giving? Um, those are, to me, that's a pastoral concern as well, that people are experiencing joy in that aspect of their life. And by the way, I mean, as I read the principles that you include in the idea of sexual flourishing, they're also the principles that I think many of us would want to live our lives leaning 
too, right? Uh, gratitude and generosity, everyone, no, no negative judgment, narrow judgment, maybe I should say shamelessness. Yes. I mean, that's all also what it means to be human. It's the thing I hope we aspire to. Yeah, why does sexuality and our our sexual lives have to be just this completely separate right. category from everything right. else? All right. Uh, Reverend Stiles says on Twitter, we had a panel discussion on faith and sexual, uh, sexuality at our church for confirmation students last year. Excellent. Which included couples and singles of various ages. It was well received by some. Others were mortified, saying that the church has no business talking about this. Let me grab a call here from Carly in White Bear Lake. Carly, you have a question for Nadia. Yes? I do. I do. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I am the parent of a 16-year-old uh, boy who is in a relationship with a girl who has constant negative reinforcement about her sexuality, and their intimacy is extremely unhealthy. And in addition to the it's a sin to use birth control, um, how does a parent of a, of a child who is in a sexually unhealthy relationship um, use your curriculum to help make that uh, young person realize what is sexually healthy? Good. Good question. Mm. Well, I don't. I don't have a curriculum. I, uh, but, but the our whole lives, I think, could be really um, helpful in this way because uh, of just the way they talk about things in a very non-anxious way and in a positive way. Um, so, I, I do commend that as as a resource for sure. Are there other are there other places, Nadia, that you would suggest? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it, it. I think you've all mentioned our whole lives program is. I mean, might that give Carly some some ways to go on this? Oh, for sure. No, I, I think that would be an excellent resource. Yeah. Okay. Uh, call here to Lindsay in Sioux Falls. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. Hi. Thanks, Thanks for, for calling in. Call. Sure. Um, I just wanted to share. So 15 years ago, I was um, 19 years old. I was a worship leader at a non-denominational megachurch. I was kind of the poster child for their music program, and I became pregnant Mm -hmm. and went through, uh, you know, my my two options were losing everything or having an abortion. I chose to to have my daughter. But the the shame um, that I personally didn't didn't necessarily feel um, was, you know, so amplified by the church completely um, ostracizing me. I mean, I lost my job. I lost my friends. I lost my community. Wow. But at the same time, there was no conversation about sex. You know, there was no education. Uh, the, the sex talk that I received was, you know, uh, here's, here's what sex is. Here's how it happens. You don't do it until you're married. And so the protections for young women in the church, when there isn't that conversation about your autonomy over your own body your access and options for birth control, how to have a sexually, um, uh, just the, the education of, of being a sexual being um, within faith wasn't there. And so it was really um, damaging. Um, and I have, you know, since um, got married, my, my daughter is 14, I have two more children, and we are very open with those conversations because I feel that the 
um, the fact that you are a sexual being is because God created us to be that, and it is not something to be shamed or shameful of, and it should be a conversation that we can have in our home um, mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, my uh, kids go to a Lutheran um, after-school care program, and um, one of the directors said, hey, your son was asking, you know, the conversation of babies came up, and your son was asking mm-hmm. some questions, um, and he asked if the baby came out of the vagina or a uterus, and, and I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. We'll talk about, you know, appropriateness of when to have those conversations, and he stopped me, and he said, no, have that conversation. He said, but I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the fact that he's comfortable with those terms and understanding because um, that's something I never would have, you know, had in my mind at that age of, you know, anatomy and just just the the nature of life. And so, boy, Lindsay, um, I think what you're doing uh, is is great. I have to say, Lindsay, Uh, also, you, you came out of what could have been a really scarring experience in which you you might have turned inward and you've boy, you've come out of it with, uh, just so much enlightenment. Wow. Well, that that's to me often what redemption looks like is exactly what she just described, what Lindsay just described, which is she needed something that she didn't have mm. and she didn't get. And so one of the ways she's healing that wound that she has is by providing it for the next generation. Mm-hmm. So that's sometimes the way redemption looks. And I did have a question, though. I'm j- just out of curiosity. I wonder what was the impact to the young man who who was involved in her becoming pregnant? Did he lose his job? Did he lose his standing? Was there shame put upon him? Did he have to lo- leave his church? I mean, the, the one sided shame machine that operates when it comes to women's sexuality is um, is horrific. Uh, Lindsay, do you do you know what what he yeah, suffered? It, yeah. It initially, uh, he did lose his job, uh, ended up coming back a year later and um, being reemployed. Um, mm. with that same church. Um, I was mm. given, when I left, basically a, a roadmap of the things I would have to do in order to uh, to come in. And the, the juxtaposition of, you know, a, a church that, that goes after the sinners and wants to save the lost, and yet there's no space for, quote-unquote, sin within those who are, are already saved. Um, it was a really, uh, it, it was a turnoff, but it also it caused me to understand that my faith was, was personal and not dictated wow. by mm-hmm. a, a congregation. And, um, but yes, there, there was a, a very big difference in the way we were treated after the fact. Really glad you mm-hmm. called, Lindsay. Nadia, when Lindsay talked about the shame uh, and, and this this decision that she had to make, or at least that's what the church thought, between having an abortion and having the child and then being shunned by the faith community, um, you you relate a situation, I, I think you describe it as a fight or flight moment at a Lutheran retreat, where one of the people at the retreat is holding forth about the morality of abortion. W- will you tell us what you said and what you did and how it was kind of transformational? Well, it was it was kind of ironic because I had just finished writing the chapter in the book that talks about uh, having an abortion when I was 24, and I, I just had never 
spoken about it publicly before. And what is the statistic? One in four women, one in five women are in a position of needing to terminate a pregnancy, and yet it's just almost never spoken about. And um, this man uh, just sort of in this Q&A had some very harsh rhetoric uh, about about women who terminate pregnancies, and it was it was very intense. And I saw the bo- the body language of the women in the room really shift. And I just said, "Hey, if you were hurt by what he w- he just said, I'm so sorry." And then I just said, talked, told my story of having an abortion when I was 24, and um, I'd never said it before. And I said, "If you have a story of having an abortion, I would really." welcome hearing it. And I was up till midnight, like people, women wanting to tell me their stories. And this one woman um, waited till I was um, going back to my cabin. And she said, all she said was, I was 20. And I said, I'm, I'm so glad you told me. And I gave her a hug. And she said, I've never told anyone, not my mother, not my husband, not my best friend. And it was like 23 years ago. And I said, why haven't you ever told anyone? And she goes, I never, I guess I never felt like it was safe to or that I was invited to. And so um, there's an organization called Exhale that I think is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's not pro-choice and it's not pro-life. It's pro-voice. And it's an organization that exists just for women to hear each other's stories, to be able to tell their own story in a safe space. And um, I think that's really critical. Why do you think um, this was a part of your life, a life in which you've been pretty candid about other parts of your life? Why do you think it was that you had never talked about it openly? I mean, because you never know who is going to be listening that is going to say that's murder, that you're a murderer, that, um, you know, that kind of rhetoric is so violent that I never know who in the room is going to respond in that way. And so it doesn't feel safe often to tell your own story. And also, I think there's rhetoric on both on both sides in a way, because, you know, making I love babies and making that decision really destroyed me for a while. I was it was it really threw me for a loop. And, and I never thought it was the wrong choice. You know, like both those things are true, like more than one thing can be true at a time. And when you say safe, do you mean from uh, you know, just threats from people who oppose us? Or do you mean there would be judgment from people who didn't understand me and understand what you just said, that two things can be true at the same time? I mean, did I you also both. fear that? Yeah. Yeah, I think both. I mean, I, I, you know, I definitely had a security person on my book tour uh, as a, you know, as a as a Christian pastor who was very open and unapologetic about um, telling a story about terminating a pregnancy, uh, people can, you know, people's rhetoric can get very intense and very violent around this issue. I'm sure you've thought about this. I've wondered if you removed shame uh, around the decision to have an abortion, whether, I, I wonder if we'd make just more progress from whatever place you come to about that decision towards contraception, towards making abortions much more rare. I mean, that 
That's where I think a lot of people are. And yet yeah. that shame infects so much of the discussion about it. It's a powerful weapon, isn't it? It is a powerful weapon. And I think that, you know, what what the side that wants to, um, you know, restrict access to legal safe abortion, thinking that's the answer. And I'm like, why is increased access to free, uh, you know, birth control not the answer? Like, if you want to make something illegal, Make it illegal to ejaculate inside of a woman that doesn't want to be pregnant. Like if, if you want to make laws that restrict the sexual activity of men or have some sort of impact on men, that would really, really affect the abortion rate. <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead, everything is around making access restricted or illegal. Yes, and... I also think if you could if you could just and this this is impossible because we are where we are on this but if you could just remove that moral inner judgment out of this discussion I think the table could be you know laid with we are now how do we make this more rare how do we Sure. How do we come together around policies on contraception? Yeah, right, you know. But it's the same. It's the same with just sex in general. Yes, is that's that right. When yeah. you when you remove that, I mean, if you can remove the shame that people have about it, people end up making pretty healthy decisions yeah. for themselves. Yeah. You know, it's when you when you have repressive teachings about sexuality and so much shame about it, that's when, like I said, that's when the really dark stuff um, ends up coming out sideways. Yeah. Call here from. I mean, we in our in our congregation, we never said, "Here's what this church teaches about what you should be doing sexually." Not one time. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I don't know of of one situation in ten years where people were acting out sexually in the church. <laughs> a call here from Sharif in Minneapolis. Hi, Sharif. Thanks so much for waiting. I know it's been a while. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I thought about this issue a lot, so I wanted to just uh, input a little bit. And uh, what I was thinking is um, the original intention for uh, churches and stuff and also uh, Muslim groups uh, around marriage is probably to try to um, inculcate, like, um, better qualities in society, such as intelligence or um, strength or whatever, um, and also to protect the children. Uh, so you would have a relationship that's going to last, so it would be protecting for the children. I see. Um, but right. I think it has gone astray. Um, also, um, in the Islamic side as well, um, it's an important issue that's being ignored. So I'm glad you guys are talking about it. And I think uh, Muslim people should also pay attention to this issue. You know, Sharif, the, the, I think the beginning of that you were saying, this is the church investing in it, it what it believes is our healthiest version of a society. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Nadia, to that, you would say what? Well, I think that the idea that um, that you should not have sex until you're married and only within marriage was an ethic that might have made a lot more sense when the age of marriage was immediately after the age of um, 
of sexual maturity, right? Right after puberty, basically, people were getting married. So, and when there was not access to reliable birth control. So um, to rethink that ethic, I think, is really critical in an age where people are not getting married right after puberty and where we do have more options in terms of having safe, protected sex. Call here from Amy in Rochester. Hi, Amy. Hi. Um, I'm a Presbyterian minister with two uh, small churches, actually, in Wisconsin. And I remember being told by really an excellent uh, scholar and professor, he said, um, he said, uh, romance is a side issue. And I was so grateful to that because it challenged me. And his idea was that, you know, justification, you know, multisyllabic words, sanctification, that's where it's at <laughs> in the Bible. And that really challenged me. And in my own unpacking of the Bible, I realized that uh, it's not a side issue. Hmm. Um, actually, in my um, exegesis, I, I, it seems to me that the gospel actually is equivalent to romance, because, you know, we look, say, in Isaiah 54, and this this city, pictured as a woman, this assembly, is made happy by her husband. It's a romance, and it's it, it's uh, linked, or even maybe you could even say equivalent to the gospel. Um, and uh, it's it's really um, far more. It's at the heart, literally at the heart of uh, the Bible. And I know in my church, as we go chapter by chapter through the Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. And that, oh, that will challenge you like nothing else. I mean, we learn about romance, Jacob weeping, you know, as he kisses Rachel, or on the Me Too um, uh, uh, apocalypse, as you you were saying, um, uh, Tamar, the multi-generation destruction that comes from her rape. Um, There, it really... um, grows us, I you're, think, as congregations. You're speaking Nadia's language here. I, I <laughs> yeah, can hear I that. Am, I am, I am, I am. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. But Nadia, I mean, I think we've been pretty accustomed to thinking of the Bible as a, if you, if you think about the kind of language that's in the Bible, right, it's full of passion and deep emotion and romance and yet um what is it are we back to augustine here for and sensuality yes oh uh, no but but uh but one of his uh another quote church father origin because in the song of songs it's literally this very long erotic poem in the bible that is uh mostly about a woman a woman's erotic uh, desires and between two people who aren't married and who are unapologetic and who love their own bodies and are invested in their partner's pleasure and and all of this and and it is a beautiful erotic poem but this guy again origin i i can't remember fourth fifth century dude um said no 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 it has nothing to do with carnality <laughs> It's about Jesus' love for the church, (laughs) hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Anyway, um, okay, well, that's interesting. So for a long time, it was seen as, oh, no, this is just a metaphor for God's love. And it's like, okay, well, where'd we get that? Oh, this guy, Origen. Oh, well, who was he? Oh, he's a dude who uh, was so terrified of sexual temptation, he literally castrated himself. Like, is this, this is really the guy we're going to go to for interpreting an erotic poem? (laughs) 
<laughs> so, I mean, I just think knowing the history of interpretation is really can be very liberating. Uh, you know, we haven't talked about the purity mo- movement, and and you've written about this in the book. And uh, I was reminded that Linda K. Klein's book, Pure, came out this past summer. So I yeah. went back to read some of what she had written about that. She's and great. She says that the idea at the center of this purity movement was that male sexual desire was volatile and uncontrollable. And the only way to control it was to make sure that women removed the right, the threat and the temptation of their bodies. Yeah, you concur uh, with purity, that? Yeah. yeah, purity culture equals rape culture. 100%. I was given that message growing up very clearly. Boys cannot control their sexual nature. So girls, it's your job to make sure you're not wearing tempting clothing. And if you are dating a boy, you have to make sure you don't, quote, go too far sexually. Because if you do, after they're aroused a certain amount, they can't help themselves. Literally given that message in church. You don't have to be in church, though, to get that message. That's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what happened? There was this whole movement where they had these daddy-daughter dances, and the daddy would come to the door with a bouquet of flowers, and she'd be all dressed up, and they'd go to a, a ball together like a date. And then he'd put a ring on her 11-year-old finger and make her promise that she would not have sex with a man until another man put a different ring on her finger on the day she got married. Like, that's just creepy as all get out, first of all. <laughs> second, second of all, she doesn't even know what sex is, probably, or what she wants or who she is. And the church, and so this message that, like, your sexuality belongs to your dad, it belongs to the church, it belongs to your future husband, which is a, which is a Um, God never asked you, women, to give God back the gift that God gave you, which is your own sexuality. It belongs to you, and it's yours to enjoy. So I don't know if you saw this, that I actually instigated a project where women mailed me their purity rings. Oh. And I melted those rings into a sculpture of a (laughs) vagina, and I gave it to (laughs) Gloria Steinem on stage at the Makers Conference. Oh, my gosh. No, I did not see that. It was my uh, uh, swords into plowshares moment. Oh, my gosh. And and Gloria, I'm sure, accepted it with great joy and glee. Absolute glee. Glee (laughs) Glee was the correct word. Mary says on Twitter, I had an abortion at age 17. My dad called me a murderer. Don't know if I will ever get over this. I was Catholic and I think was being the important word there. I'm sure you heard from a lot of women who Mm -hmm. their faith and their life experience, uh, they're not matching even to this day, right? Even as adults, it's very hard to leave that behind. Absolutely. I mean, I know middle-aged women now who still can't make themselves wear a V-neck because of being raised in purity culture. And they don't even believe it anymore. Or, you know, I interviewed a woman who uh, experienced marital rape when she was married at 20 years old. And her church told her, well, there is a verse in the Bible that says that women are subject to their husbands. So that can't ever technically be rape. I mean, it just goes so deep. It goes so deep. And it's just time to speak the truth of all of it and for the people to get free. We're uh, we're keeping people in their cars to listen to this, Nadia. Deb says, uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber is marvelous. She visited Alexandria a few years ago. My church, Calvary Lutheran, 
brought her in and filled our largest auditorium. Thank you for bringing her in to talk today. Sitting in my car, can't get out. Good. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Uh, To the phones to John in Minneapolis. Hi, John. You have a question for Nadia, yes? Yeah, Nadia, and thank you both. I just, uh, you know, I'm I'm born and raised Catholic. Uh, and and certainly remember all these little stories you're telling telling that you know that they're told in various ways in different denominations and uh, since my youth I've I've come to a different kind of Jesus that Jesus being that uh, these conversations with two women that are educated uh, interesting uh, are redefining what I think is the most important story to be mm-hmm. told which is that our human experience is the primary story. Um, that we need to, as if you're a faithful person, with all due respect, that's great. Have your, your personal faith, but we should be serious when we talk about sex and we talk about decision making. We now know that this is a science-based approach. Mm-hmm. That we know what biology is. We know what the brain is doing. Mm-hmm. Not entirely, but we're getting close. And to continue to perpetuate yeah. uh, uh, the Abrahamic tradition. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you you reference all these men. Well, of course, we're never going to get away from it if people literally believe that their savior is a man. And that that, that Savior, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost is the women's movement. And if the women can take that, and they are, take that mantle and reclaim at least half, if not more, so that we can get back to the primary conversation, which is just treating each yeah. other with respect and Let, dignity. You know, John, real, good good insight there. But, uh, Nadia, I, I wonder what you're making of, and, and this is something we're going to explore in the series about the way women are reclaiming or claiming maybe for the first time some power in these patriarchal religious organizations do you do you see yes finally progress here are you are you concerned that it's not moving very quickly well i mean look we've ordained women for 40 years in the ELCA but 40 years does not undo 2000 years of male domination so before we pat ourselves on the back and say look how many young women are in seminary uh we have to see how deeply the toxicity of male domination runs in our tradition now i say that because i'm infected with that same toxicity i didn't even hear a woman pray out loud in front of others till i was 27 cuz i was raised in a christian fundamentalist home and so um and the effect of that ran, runs so deeply in me that sometimes before I can stop it, if I see a woman in a clergy collar, I'll think, well, who does she think she is? Huh. And that's, li- I, that's literally what I wear, right? So, like, <laughs> I'm saying that, that theological messaging like that runs so deeply that um, to just make cosmetic changes um, does not do much. So I think to be able to talk about how deeply that runs and the effect that it has is really critical. Hey, uh, we're out of time, but I'm going to I'm going to ask you via email for some voices that we should talk to for the series. OK, some women. Oh, that... I cannot wait. All to right. Give you recommendations. <laughs> Nadia, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for being Gary. the first uh, in this series of conversations and being so marvelous, as our tweeters Delighted say. <laughs> Nadia Bowles Weber's book is called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. Programming is supported by the McKnight Foundation, advancing a more just, creative, and abundant future where people and planet thrive. Online at mcknight.org.
You just heard a recording of a live radio show from NPR News. You can add your voice to the discussion by calling in at 800-242-2828 or tweeting us at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, NPR. To hear more conversations like this, subscribe to our podcast. And thanks.